Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. And I'm Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. March is Women's History Month, and in this episode, publisher Elizabeth Norman talks with author Eve Kahn about her 2019 book about Connecticut artist Mary Rogers Williams. It's a rare insider view of the challenges women artists of the late 19th century faced. Kahn drew from a collection of Williams' gossipy letters in which she describes her desperation to escape her teaching job at Smith College to paint and travel abroad. Hear how she talked her way into artist James McNeil Whistler's London home and about drawing from a cadaver at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts in Paris. Stay with us for this and more in this episode of Grading the Nutmeg. Hi, this is Elizabeth Norman, publisher of Connecticut Explored. I'm here today with Eve Kahn, author of the beautiful Wesleyan University Press book, Forever Seeing New Beauties, The Forgotten Impressionist, Mary Rogers Williams, 1857 to 1907. Eve is a historian and journalist and wrote about antiques for the New York Times from 2008 to 2016, and is a regular contributor to the Times, the magazine Antiques, Apollo Magazine, and Atlas Obscura about art, architecture, and design. She wrote about Mary Rogers Williams and Williams's friend, Henry Cook White, in our winter 2021-2022 issue. And today we're talking with her as a nod to Women's History Month this March. So welcome, Eve. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for this invitation. You and I have been corresponding about this for nearly 10 years, right? I had contacted you about 10 years ago asking about uh, University of Hartford records, right? The Hartford Art School records. Right, which I had written about. And we have a story about the Hartford Art School in uh, Connecticut Explored, which people can take a look at. And there, there is a connection. So she taught at the Society of Decorative Art, oh, okay. which, which is the ancestor, right? I know she trained there and then taught so this is your first book, and it's a beautiful book filled with illustrations and images of Mary uh, Mary Roger Williams's artwork and photos of people and places connected to her story. But really, the core of the book is her copious correspondence. You already had an interest in 19th century American women artists, which you'd written about in the Times. So tell us how this project came to be. And I'll add the story begins with your own Connecticut connection. You grew up in Stanford in an 1830s farmhouse where your mother, Renee, who is an artist and an art historian, still lives. My mother, my mother used to run a preservation organization. She's only recently retired. She turns 92 this fall. So there are more there are more um, 18th and 19th century houses in North Stamford than you'd think survive, and a handful survive south of the Merritt. My mother and I started going to tag sales all around Fairfield County when I was a kid in the 1970s. We'd go out every Saturday morning and look for china, glassware, uh, furniture, paintings, oddball stuff that the, the rest of the world didn't wasn't interested in necessarily, stuff that was damaged, stuff that was fun, bring it home, research it. At some point in the 70s, my mother brought home a painting from uh, a tax sale in Costco in a big gold frame. She bought it for the frame. She only really ever loved the frame. She studied the signature at lower right, M.R. Williams, identified M.R. Williams in whatever research materials were available back then, pre-internet, as Mary Rogers Williams. 
and my mother hung it on the wall. And it there it sat in the in the 1830s farmhouse living room for decades. And I remember going to visit her in early 2012. I had just written my antiques column entirely focused on new research, new discoveries about late 19th, early 20th century American women artists, women who'd hiked in the White Mountains to paint and women who'd kayaked along the coast of Florida to paint. There were all these new studies developing. There's That was a groundswell then, and now it's a tsunami of interest in that field. I was visiting my mom, and I remember thinking something along the lines of, I'm an antiques columnist now. I should know more about the material culture that I grew up around. And I asked her about this painting and I went home and Googled that name, M.R. Williams, Mary Rogers Williams, which connected me to the Florence Griswold Museum in Old Lyme, which had had a show of Henry White's work um, in 2009. And in that show had been Mary's portrait of Henry. I called the museum and said, my family also owns an artwork by this interesting woman artist. You, you know, who owns that portrait of Henry? And you think they would have any information on her? And I called the Whites and the Whites basically said, yeah, our grandfather adored her. Come visit us in Waterford outside New London, whenever you're ready. And I went up weeks after that and met the amazing George White, who founded the Eugene O'Neill Theater in Waterford, and the amazing Nelson White, Henry's grandsons. And they brought out a box of papers in addition to hundreds of artworks. They have thousands of pages of Mary's letters. Their grandfather adored her. She died in 1907. They inherited her estate and uh, they put everything in storage. Bless them. And held on to it, which is so wonderful. So you started reading through these letters and you clearly you got hooked. There are a lot of late 19th, early 20th century forgotten women artists around. Mary's work is very powerfully proto-modern. She used just wisps of pastel to, to suggest clouds and, and terracotta rooftops and horizontal uh, horizons. So I discovered her in 2012. By 2014, the Florence Griswold Museum borrowed a lot of her paintings and pastels from the Whites, in addition to um, finding paintings in, in other collections. So there were a few dozen of her works, the first major retrospective of her work since her death in 1907. So 2014, 2015. And the Florence Griswold Museum also put out ephemera, some of the letters in, in these envelopes are not only thousands of pages of Mary's writings, incredibly observant about every aspect of the world, but also snapshots, postcards, receipts, confetti from an 1890s Paris Mardi Gras parade in purples and greens. Her, her friends went through the confetti on the street and picked out the colors, the moody purples and green colors that they thought she would like and brought them to her. You're really pointing to one aspect of her and her life and her art that is a little frustrating, I'll say, for the for the reader, which is she she is an incredible observer. And I want you to talk about that, about life and uh, where she's traveling. But she remains a little bit of an enigma. It's a little still a little bit hard to get a real sense of her as an artist. She doesn't talk a lot about her in, interior uh, creative life, what she's thinking about. Her story, though, in some ways is is really quite universal. I think that's sort of a wonderful thing about it, that struggle of so many artists to make a living from their art or to have the means to pursue their art without interruptions of the daily drudgery. And it also talks, she also talks a lot about the, the business of art, which every artist struggles I assume they all struggle with that endless effort to get the next gallery show and to sell your work, which of course is doubly hard or maybe triply hard for women to get access and, and respect in that era. So then it's also the story of 
women of that era who had so few options for supporting themselves. So tell us how you see William's life and art, so the big arc of that story. When my manuscript got reviewed by scholars, somebody asked, why doesn't this author say more about how the artist chose her materials and her subject matter? And the answer is because she didn't write it down. She wrote down what she paid for tram tickets and what antique she resisted buying in a window because she was on a budget, but she did not write down why something deserved to be rendered in oil on canvas versus pastel versus watercolor and what she, which sketches from the road she decided to turn into paintings, why she labored over her oils on canvas scraping them down and redoing them, scraping them down and redoing them again and again, pegging away, and why she did not do that with other, I mean, pastel and, and watercolor, they're both very immediate. How did she decide that her oils needed to be constantly revised? No idea. How she decided what to paint, to catch a sketch, to find a sketch, how she went out into the countryside and what grabbed her attention, which people came to her to pose, how did she turn away uh, portrait sitters? We don't know. How she she decided to portray her portrait sitters, you know, sitting, standing, staring off into space. It's just not written down. It's wonderfully mysterious. I also don't know. So she dies just before her 50th birthday. She dies two-ish weeks before uh, she would have turned 50 in 1907. So at age 49, just before she left the States for good, um, she left the States for good in 1906, dies in Italy in 1907. Just before she left the States, she saw modernism coming in in New York galleries. She saw the Ashcan School coming on view and she loved it. She loved this smart, wild gang. What kind of art would she have done differently? Had she lived longer? We don't know. And you ask about being a woman and making money. And these are all just core issues in this book. They recur again and again and again. She's talking about her budget. She's reassuring her sister she's going to be fine. You know, she's having a dress made and she hates it. Do you have any idea how much productivity among gilded age women of every potential profession gets wasted because you can't buy ready to wear that looks even half decent? You can't, as, as Mary taught at Smith from 1888 until 1906, she could not have taught if she didn't have respectable looking clothes. And you could not buy ready to wear that was respectable looking. You had to have stuff custom made. She literally describes standing around getting pins jabbed into her. Well, and so you point to um, something we haven't really explained, which is what was her economic status? What Tell us about where she was born and you know, what her circumstances were. Her father was a prosperous baker who was from a farming family in Portland, Connecticut, actually the hamlet of Cobalt in, within Portland. Her father made a good living as a baker. He In Hartford. In Hartford, he baked the cake for Samuel Colt's wedding, the great confection of mid 19th century Hartford. It was multiple feet wide and multiple feet tall. So they had some, they were, they were comfortable growing up, but, you know, not cultured, educated. Her mother was also from a, you know, a prosperous, but blue collar, as we would call it now, family. She and her three sisters were orphaned uh, by the time they were teenagers. Uh, they had two widowed aunts, both from Portland, who um, helped finish raising them. 
One of her sisters became a teacher of science at Hartford Public High School. Another sister taught at the Innovative School for the Deaf in Hartford. And three of the four surviving children of Mary's parents, a, a, a third sister didn't work. They had enough stock, enough, you know, literally company stock uh, in insurance companies, textile companies, this kind of thing. They had enough basic inheritance and a lovely house. And they also owned the house next door. But where they lived is now a snarl of highway ramps, or I would tell you the modern day address of Mary. It's, it's vanished under highway ramps. So they had enough money, which carefully managed, they could get by on. Within a few years of Mary's death, her sisters are getting towards the edge of being broke. And fortunately, the dear family friend, Henry White, who inherited Mary's estate, he had had the common sense as a young man to marry an heiress from Hartford, whose family had made fortunes in, among other fields, making shoes for Civil War soldiers. Henry didn't have to work for a living. And Henry supported Mary's surviving family until the last sister died in the 1940s. Bless wow. him. I mean, I believe he paid for a home for the two surviving sisters after Mary's death when their home was torn down. He moved them to he moved them to a lovely new Dutch colonial revival house that's not far from the grounds of uh, the Connecticut Historical Society today. And yeah, the only reason they were able to survive was that Henry and then his son Nelson sent checks. Please do not hesitate to ask for more. The Whites would write to Mary's last surviving sister. That, that's wonderful. And then, as you mentioned, uh, Mary had to. She taught at Smith College, really out of necessity. These were working women, but she escaped as often as she could abroad. So the year she took a sabbatical in Paris is so wonderfully evocative of that idea of the American uh, artist abroad, and. You know, to note, and you've referenced it, her letters are home to her sisters and, and her family members. So she's writing to them about her travels. They're more a little more of a travelogue, and that's in part why she's not writing to them about her art. She probably wrote to Henry White a little bit more about her art and experience. So, so she takes a sabbatical from her teaching at Smith. She, she increasingly, as she gets older, just hates and hates and hates teaching. Uh, that's not really what she would love. To, that's not her passion to do. So she is able to get a sabbatical. She goes to Paris. This is around what, 1900, 1899. She's able to rent a studio and contribute a little bit to her sisters back home. She's incredibly resourceful, as you referred to, willing to live cheaply, uh, particularly if she could do so without a roommate. She disdains the American Girls Club. That's such an odious name, which was a haven for the sort of young single women that she was. She described it as, as quote, smelly, dirty, and chilly, and too many females, and bad food. <laughs> it's like that, that pretty much sets it. But another shocking passage is the class she took at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts, in which they brought in an actual cadaver to draw from. I wanted you to talk about that. You know, she runs into tons of Connecticut people on the road. Mm -hmm. It's hilarious, right? Everywhere she goes in past. So well, she's got this sabbatical year, this joyous sabbatical year from fall of 1898 through summer 1899. She was running into interesting people from Connecticut who are on the road with her. And you, you point out, so these letters are to her sisters. She wrote to them at least a couple paragraphs every day. And then she wrote to Henry every few weeks. Because the bulk of the letters are to her sisters, you know, I can't imagine she would have written home 
as always, I was weeping over our mother's death, um, you know, and our father came to me in, in, our, in my dreams. She doesn't write about her emotional life, perhaps because she assumed that her sisters knew what she was feeling. She also edits her emotional life because she was almost undoubtedly gay. She had a long-term female companion that she traveled with who was wealthy and showered her with presents. Uh, any kind of connection to a significant other in any vivid terms is not, and nothing explicit is in her letters. She was very careful. She knew her letters were passed around. To Henry, yes, she wrote a little bit more about her art world experience, but it's funny you mentioned this, Elizabeth, I've never actually thought about this. To Henry, again, there was that shared ground, right? She knew mm. that he shared her view of what was good art and what was bad. And so she sent him joking descriptions of bad art shows but she never said to him, well, as you know, when we go out into the countryside, we see this and we want to depict that. And this is the style we want to work in. It's not there because it was all just assumed to right. be the case. Yeah. And yes, while she is there, a great, another great Connecticut story, she scrapes by in Paris for a year on her own. And at one point, her sisters send her sisters are sending her copies of the Hartford Current so she can keep up with the news. And she devours these papers down to the classified ads, she writes. And at one point, she's at breakfast, she opens the paper and a gold coin falls out. They've sent her money folded <laughs> into a newspaper. So the cadaver, yes, the cadaver. Hey, Grading the Nutmeggers, we'll return to the episode in a moment, but I want to invite you to deepen your connection to Connecticut history with a CT Explored Inbox subscription. It's our brand new e-newsletter that sends you the latest stories, exhibitions, and program announcements. Lots of good stuff to enhance your Grading the Nutmeg experience right to your email inbox. It comes out every other week, just enough, not too much. Visit ctexplored.substack.com today. So she writes these hilarious descriptions of going to the Ecole des Beaux-Arts. And I mean, artists weren't just bohemian, many of them in her time. They smelled. They didn't shower. She writes vividly about the smells of having to hang out with artists. And she writes vividly about how so many of them look embryonic and like they'll never develop into anything. And she goes again and again to the Ecole des Beaux-Arts. They are bringing out the same cadaver and it's getting moldery and moldery. What refrigerator, what ice this was kept on? Elizabeth, I have the faintest idea. How in heaven's name was it the same dead body week after week yeah. brought out? And then she gives these funny details. I'm sitting next to a woman who had just biked to class and her outfit is covered in mud. Yes. And the skeleton as the as it as the cadaver as the as the weeks pass gets reduced to down to just bones and skull. How in yeah. heaven's name the preservation of this was possible? I have no <laughs> idea she's fascinated by whistler and he he's sort of the one art figure that we know of today that that kind of um, lives large in in her her stories sort of more in the beginning and then a little later she gets a little disenchanted with him yeah so on her first trip to europe 
she is traveling with an artist friend and they send him a note and they invite themselves over to his home in London. And he's a rare deer, she describes him. And he gives her all kinds of art world gossip and he tours her through his home and he sends her to the Peacock Room, which survives at the Freer Museum in Washington. He sends her to see that. She sends home vivid, vivid, vivid descriptions of this. She also keeps a diary and writes even more vivid detail about this. A rare deer, she adores him. And then when she's taking her sabbatical in Paris, by then he's moved to Paris, he has a school. Some of the classes are for women only and she enrolls and she's excited about it. And she couldn't have known that he's involved in his usual you know, legal messes and couldn't have known that he would barely ever show up for class. So this is a feminist book in many ways, right? She defends the female point of view, and yet she looks down on women all the time. What fools women can be, she writes, after seeing people, the girls, the women in the class, fawning over Whistler, his every word. She realizes that he's simply going to quote his own published writings to the class. He's going to uh, tell everyone that their work should look like his that he takes out his monocle, I noticed, when he actually needed to see anything. The monocle is simply an affectation. He doesn't use it. It's just to make him look dashing. And then he, she she implies that, uh, you know, there are men in the classes, but the men sort of fall away. But, and then, as you say, there are these women-only classes. It really makes Whistler sound a little creepy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yes, quoting himself, quoting his own published works, having the class buy printouts, you know, printed version, oh. suitable for framing of his own text. Yes, Mary, Mary grew very quickly, very cynical. And other yeah. women and in the And eventually she, she stops showing up. She just decides yeah. this is a waste of time. And I mean, that's one thing. She's very guarded about her time and how how to spend it. The thing she loves doing though, really, and that speaks to the, the title of your book is Forever Seeing New Beauties. She just loves to be out and about in nature and in traveling and in, in the environment. So she paints a fair number of landscapes, usually in watercolor or pastel. Yeah, there's a handful of oil, oil on canvas oil on panel landscapes, they tend to be quite large. Why in general on canvas, she worked in a, on a larger scale than, mm -hmm. than her pastels and, and watercolors. I don't know. And again, I don't know how she chose her subject matter. I know that I went to the outskirts of Florence. I know she painted at Fiesole up in the hills outside Florence. And when I went up to exactly where I knew she had been, I looked off into the hills that she had painted these dry, parched, wonderful, eerie, you know, the contrast of the dark greens and the, and the sienna brown terrain. And behind me are the domes of Florence, the spectacular tile-covered domes of Florence that countless other artists came there to paint, specifically came to the hills to get this, to get this bird's eye view of the domes of Florence. Mary never even, she looked behind her and she said, nah, trite, cliche. <laughs> I'm after a little slice of random trees and, and random slopes and random little stucco farmhouse outbuildings. Which tells you that she really wasn't driven by creating work that was popular and, and saleable. You know, the kind of tourist trinkets that, that uh, so many Americans would pick up abroad. She knew her Norway past. So when she's in Norway, she writes home that she wanted she wanted the train to slow down so she could make a pastel every five minutes. 
and she writes about approaching the Arctic Circle and, and longing mm. to paint those, paint those to, to render those in pastel. I know that at one point she showed an entire room of her Norway pastels at an art show in New York. I know that uh, she organized a two-person show with Henry, 1897, 1898, in Hartford and then Springfield, Mass. And she brought out her Norway scenes for that. She had some sense that those were marketable, mm. but it's not like she went back to Norway year after year and said, okay, mm. those sell for five bucks, eight bucks, 10 bucks, 20 bucks. And she was a terrible marketer of her portraits. And towards the end of her life, she she creates a pastel portrait of a young woman whose family doesn't know that she's going to expect payment for it. <laughs> the family comes to pick it up. It's it's a it's a Smith-related connected family. They come to pick it up and they assume that she has done it as a favor to mm. them. I mean, even they don't even want to pay for the frame. And mm. she writes home about, you know, how funny it is to be, you know, this bad a businesswoman. <laughs> But she is sort of moderately successful at getting her pictures exhibited at various shows, including in Europe and, and also in New York. And she has a couple a show in Hartford and Springfield. But again, an overall sales don't seem to really follow. And of course, she becomes increasingly frustrated with the, the, that gatekeeping aspect of the art world at that time. I mean, she literally writes about, you know, we couldn't go to such and such. It wasn't Ladies' Day. All, almost all the critics who wrote about her work were men. Some of them loved her dreamy atmospheric effects, and some of them said she needed to go through a severe course of drawing. Her work was distinctive. It didn't resemble anyone else's. She wasn't copying, which was strange for a woman in art. Hmm. And sadly, there is no letter that I could find that coincides with her to document her reaction to having it said that her not copying anyone was strange for a woman in art. Henry's son, Nelson, also a painter. So Henry's a painter plus a historian. He writes about artists that he knew. Nelson, his son, also becomes a painter as well as a historian writing about artists that they knew. A letter has surfaced showing very specifically that Nelson White was planning to write a book of essays about um, underappreciated Connecticut artists. And there was going to be a chapter on Mary. And many of the letters, there's marginalia that shows what Nelson was going to focus on. And he was going to focus on what little she did reveal about her thinking about art, where she exhibited from Paris to Indianapolis dozens of times, and very specifically her observations of, of Whistler and uh, Dwight Tryon, who's from Hartford, who became her boss at Smith, and also of Albert Pinkham Ryder, the great New York-based painter that she was friends with and visited and sent to her friend Henry vivid descriptions of going to visit his completely chaotic studio in Manhattan. A, an essay was going to be written about what Mary said about men and lionizing these men. Unfortunately, Nelson didn't finish, but bless him for preserving Mary's legacy in an amazing way. Bless all the whites for preserving Mary's legacy. But Nelson did not write the, the essay that he set out to do, which is totally different from the tone I took. Nelson would not have noticed mansplaining. Nelson yeah. would not have quoted Mary saying, there was this blowhard on the ship. And every time a woman expressed an opinion about X, you know, related to science, you know, geology, whatever, he would tell her why she was wrong. 
on, or, you know, so-and-so was on the ship with us, you know, this boring guy from Connecticut. And he went on and on and on. And we just let him because we were, we were so amused to hear him tell us his entire life story from, from cradle onward. Yeah, no, Nelson White, bless him for preserving Mary's legacy, would not have written the book that I wrote based on the nuances of Mary complaining about misogyny. So tell us about her last year and her departure from Smith College. I feel like she'd be applauded today. And I feel like you would applaud her for this moment of leaning in where she advocates for a promotion, but it kind of backfires on her. So her boss, Dwight Tryon, was a landscape, most mostly landscape painter from Hartford, who had been her teacher when she first took our classes in Hartford. And then when he got the job as head of Smith College's art department in the 1880s. He brought her with him. Her title at Smith all of those years was teacher, instructor of drawing and painting, and his title was head of the department. His responsibilities were to show up every few weeks for a few hours to critique what the girls are working on, and that is always expected of him, and many times he canceled he said I, he often had the grip. So Mary would write, you know, what a great life Dwight Tryon has, you know, vacation in the summer, grip in the winter. <laughs> and fishing in the spring. <laughs> fishing, yes, yes. He was constantly, he traveled, he traveled to Maine. He had a country house in Massachusetts. He was constantly, constantly skipping out on his Smith duties. And uh, the students worshipped him. They clung to his every word. There are a handful of women's diary notes that's, you know, or letter notes that survive that show that these women were actually kind of skeptical of him. Blanche Ames uh, was a student of his who called him a ninny behind his back. Uh, she became a great a suffrage activist and a, and a color theorist and an artist. And, and uh, yeah, she, was, she became an amazing pioneer. He praised her behind her back but not to her face. And she literally called him a ninny in, in her private writings. Yes, Mary did all the work. She hung every student show. She took down every student show. She not only taught fine art classes, um, virtually all of them throughout her career at Smith, she also, for much of her career at Smith, taught art history as well. She taught survey art history courses in addition to fine art. So she she hates her job more and more. One of her responsibilities was also to help Smith decide what paintings to buy for their art museum. And she grows to hate those paintings even. They have an amazing art collection that they dispersed in the 1930s in a misguided burst of modernism. They had Aikens and Bierstadt and Innes and mm. Winslow Homer and Louis Comfort Tiffany paintings, much of which they sold in the 1930s in a foolhardy modernist uh, campaign. So in spring of 1906, she's so fed up, she writes to the administration that if not advanced to be associate professor, I will resign. And she never expects them to call her bluff. And they write back, if you will resign, if not promoted, then resign. And they force her out. They call her bluff. And they hire somebody, um, a nice woman and a talented painter named Clara Lathrop, but not nearly as talented as Mary and certainly not nearly as uh, foresightedly modern. I've written about Clara Lathrop, but she, and, and, she, and she came from a fascinating family, but uh, not of Mary's caliber, not of, not of, of Mary's proto-modernist stance. So. Smith forces her out and uh, she's stunned, but she gathers her thoughts, she gathers her stuff, and she moves to Europe, to Paris, to the same street where she had spent her 1898, 1899 sabbatical. 
uh, with no plans to come home and tries to figure out what to do with herself for, for the rest of her life. She gets an offer to teach at uh, the Wheeler School, uh, which has a summer program at Giverny. She gets offered a job teaching American girls at Giverny and turns it down, wants to focus on her own art. She's a lazy last year trying to figure out what to do. She has a, a, a studio mate who distracts her, but a very nice lady who is at ends up being at Mary's deathbed. Mary has blowout fun last summer in Siena. Uh, she doesn't know she's dying. Uh, she heads off to Venice. She has a dear friend, probably the love of her life, named Mabel Eager. Mabel Eager wants a pastel of Venice. Mary heads off there in, in September, early September 1907, after having wangled her way out of the palazzo where she's staying in Siena in the middle of the night, uh, wangling her way through half-locked doors to see a comet streak past. She's dying. She doesn't know it. She wants to see one last comet streak past mm. in the night. And she ends up in Florence, which she thinks is just going to be a brief stop on her way to Venice. And she collapses after walking from her hotel at the Arno Banks all the way up to Fiesole. And she's buried in Florence, surrounded by fascinating other expats right near Alice Keppel, one of King Edward VII's mistresses. And she's right near Lizzie Boot, Elizabeth Boot Duvenek, who was one of Henry James's dear friends. And uh, yeah, when I went to visit her grave, I thought it would be really sad to see her so far from Connecticut, because she loved Connecticut. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth, yes. as I yeah. described, she loved Connecticut's succotash. She loved yes. the Connecticut River, no matter where she traveled in Europe. Yeah, she, she loved the, the landscape in, in Cobalt at, at her aunt's uh, farm which is part of what you write about in, in our uh, winter issue, uh, winter 2021-22 issue. So thank you. That's uh, such a fascinating life. And I guess it takes you in so many kind of unexpected directions, which I think is one of the joys of the book. You think it's going to be one story, and it's really quite a unique story because she has such a personality and a particular voice and that that's what's the beauty is of quoting so extensively from her own letters and especially when she's writing to her sister so that it's very unguarded uh, she, she and she as you say guarded in the sense that she knows and she talks about how they're going to get passed around family to family member but it is it within that intimate family circle uh, nothing's going to get published nothing's going to get posted online and, and all that kind of things we deal with today any any last words I've been amazed at how, so my book came out in 2019 and I'm still getting lecture requests. I'm giving a lecture on Mary on March 3rd for the Norfolk Historical Society. I'm giving a lecture for on Mary on March 23rd for Landmark West in New York. I'm giving a lecture on April 5th on Mary for the for a library in, in Sherman, Connecticut. Mary is the gift that keeps on giving. People are ever more interested in a woman's unfiltered words. As you said, they're very. These letters are very intimate. I don't know if Mary would have wanted them published, and I certainly know she was constantly self-deprecating. That uh, that she was an undeserver is how she described herself. That she didn't deserve praise. So one last thing I'm going to leave you with, which is a vivid dream I had after the book came out. I vividly dream I'm having lunch with Mary, and we're on a terrace somewhere, we're on a terraced restaurant somewhere in Italy. And it's a gorgeous, uh, sunny day. You know, there's a flowered hillside and the, and, the, and the teal blue skies. And I hand her the book. And I say, you're going to like this. And I hand her the book. And then I realize with horror, oh my God, the book tells her she's going to die young. 
<laughs> she's going to die. Oh my God, what have I done? Oh, I've done something terrible. I hand her the book with this luminous portrait by her on the cover that everyone raves about. I hand her this book with enormous pride and I realize, oh my God, I've just told her she's going to die. And she gives me this kind of wry smile and says, you know, I, I, you know, knowing, knowing that was helpful to me, knowing that, you know, I got a lot done in what time I, I knew I had. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> that is a subject you have gotten to know very, very closely. <laughs> exactly. That I'm dreaming that I've offended her. In this dream, I, I, I still have a memory of the dream in which I stiffen and blush and start to rise out of my seat as if I could grab the book back and untell the story. When you read someone's letters like this, you get so involved in their train of thought that you want to tell them something, which is, no, don't do that. That's not going to end well. Don't sign up for that. Don't go there. Don't go there. You don't have much time left. Get your stuff together. <laughs> anyway, I, I, yes, I still would love to have lunch with Mary, even knowing that she her life ends at 49, I think she would be happy to see this much documentation of how beautifully she wrote and how beautifully she painted in her limited time on earth. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Phil, thank you, Eve, for joining us on Grading the Nutmeg. Thank you, Elizabeth. Read Eve's story in the winter 2021-22 issue of Connecticut Explored, available online at ctexplored.org. Our spring issue is now available. We're exploring craftsmanship and historic preservation. And you can find out more, at again, at ctexplored.org or sign up for our free e-newsletter for the latest stories, podcasts, and programs from our museum partners at ctexplored.substack.com. And be sure to join us for the next Grading the Nutmeg.